And we looked last Sunday at the fact that the devil is working overtime to rob us of our faith and our courage to instill some kind of fear in our hearts about the future. And I, again, from this, the book of Daniel, I have felt inspired with a positive message in relation to all that is on the horizon that we do not need to be afraid, we do not need to fear, we can have courage. And I think we need to keep in helping each other with that. Many do not want to face the cross-bearing of discipleship and instead give in and just discard their faith and, and join the world, join the broad way. How can we keep faith and courage and survive as God's people with so many uncertainties? The book of Daniel has some very clear teaching for us today. We want to look at some more of these principles this morning, again, in this from the book of Daniel. Um, and we want to notice uh, seven things we want to look at here. But first of all, just a quick review. The main purpose of the book, remember, is not about Daniel, but it is about Daniel's God. And let's keep that clear. We talk about Daniel as a hero of faith. Well, we ought to be talking, and we, we talk about these stories, of course, but we ought to be talking about the real hero of the book of Daniel is the God of Daniel. And uh, keep that that clear. Daniel and his three friends were taken with a lot of other young men far from home to the heathen capital of Babylon. Babylon was at its zenith of power, luxury, and wealth. A very pagan, polytheistic society. In other words, the worship of many gods. And like today, it could have seemed to them the paganism of Babylon was winning the day over the power of God. We too are living in a present day Babylon of the last days. And we too are bombarded with an enemy that is trying desperately to absorb us into the pagan culture of our society. We also looked at about the, the whole thought of of how will the next generation need, or what will they need to face? Now, the important things that we looked at last Sunday was three things. One was, lead your children to know the God of Daniel. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of your identity. We noticed how that Nebuchadnezzar was determined to assimilate these young men into the pagan culture and society of the empire. In other words, change their appetites, their names, their language, their clothing, their mentors or teachers, and thereby change their religion. Change who they were. And it's interesting that Daniel and his three friends understood that and refused to allow that to happen. Um, And so Babylon around us is seeking to do the same, to change who we are. Do we understand the importance of maintaining a God-honoring identity in today's world. And then the third one was, know your lines and hold them. Daniel could have rationalized all kinds of reasons for giving in to what was asked of him there in chapter 1, but he said, in other words, here's a line that I refuse to cross. He purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. Now this morning, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We want to look at seven, seven principles, I believe, further to the ones we looked at last Sunday. Those three, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 17. This is, you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He couldn't remember what it was or the interpretation, of course. And so he said, 
to the wise men, if you can't interpret this to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slay all of you. Daniel, of course, at this point, with his three friends, were part of this group. And you have Arioch, the king's executioner, coming to, to their house to slay them. And Daniel understood this. And we have in verse 16, Daniel went in, desired of the king that he would give him time, that he would show the king the interpretation. And then you have in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire the mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his friend, fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. First principle I'd like to point out in here in relation to courage for the future in a troubled world, stay close to your spiritual friends. Very simple. Stay close to your spiritual friends. We, knew that, we know that Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but exhort one another. In other words, there has to be a close relationship in brotherhood relationships if we're going to be able to face the future in a troubled world with courage. This would have been a, a, dramatic, a traumatic time when the executioner was at the door and you were having this discussion with him, just give me a little more time. I'd like to see the king and make this proposition. And what he did, he went to his house, it says, and he made this thing known to his companions that they together would desire the mercies of the God of heaven. Men who would, these were men his companions, his three friends, these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were the type of men that he went to and said, you need to pray, we need to pray, we need to seek the God of heaven together, that there would be an answer for us. To me, that, that is it's powerful. When you think about us facing the future, brothers and sisters, we are going to need each other more than ever in the years ahead. He went to the house, to his three companions. You remember, these were spiritual men. And I said spiritual friends. We can have a lot of friends, but do we have the kind of friends that these men were? The kind of men and, and sisters that you can go to who are people of conviction you associate with and we can kneel and pray together and beseech the God of heaven for his mercy and for a way forward. These were men who would rather burn than bow to the gods of their day. That's the kind of men they were. They had already stood together and faced that first battle of eating of the, off the king's table. These were men who bravely would tell the truth regardless of the consequences. When they were called into question, you know, why didn't you bow? There's God in heaven. That's why they wouldn't bow. They, they, were, they would bravely tell the truth. Are we that kind of people? A spiritual friend, spiritual support, brothers and sisters who will stand together regardless of the consequences, rather burn than bow. You know, personal, the personal independence and personal rights agenda of Western culture has infiltrated our minds more than what we think. On Friday night, we were there at Bible school, 
Clyde Zimmerman was, was talking about, you know, missions and and he talked about culture and, and all those, some of those things that go with that. And we also, before the sermon, or before the service began, we had some time and we were visiting together. And we were talking about the work in Bangladesh because he's involved in that. We communicate almost weekly about that work. But he said living in a, over there, living in a, in a totally different culture like that helps you understand, especially in Asia, Africa and Asia, helps you understand how deeply we have been affected by the independence and the personal rights agenda of the Western world. And I think, you know, I, th- I think we... we we understand it to a point, but I was, it was interesting to hear it from a man that has spent a lot of time overseas. And, and you think about this in relation to Daniel's experience here and, and those four young men banding together, you could say in a brotherhood relationship and finding strength in that and beseeching the, the God of heaven for a path forward. In other words, hold your confidence in the right place. I believe that while we know and believe that we must love the people of God, we must love the body of Christ, and we must love the brotherhood we're a part of, because that's part of the new commandment that Christ gives to us. And we understand that. But I believe that going forward in today's world, and if we're going to have courage in the future to face all that will come upon this, these our generation, maybe future generations, I believe that we are going to have to understand what it really means to love the body of Christ in a way that we don't understand today. I think there's going to be a dimension of that. And I just you just go back and read the stories of the marchers and how they banded together and their loyalty to each other and their love for each other and their willingness to die for each other. That's the kind of loyalty and cohesion that we are going to have to have as a people of God in the face of whatever will come in the future. In thinking of that then, we have to be, I believe, warned and understand and be careful with what voices we are listening to. And I know that we don't talk about this very often, but it is a concern because with our access to so many voices out there, and religious voices and so-called Christian voices and, and all the sermons and podcasts and, you know, and there's a lot of good things there. But there's a lot of danger there. A while back I was looking at an article and I thought it, it seemed like a pretty good article related to what I was studying for. And suddenly I realized that it was written by a cult group. And I I just was, it just shook me a little bit. The fact that I hadn't caught that. It's a little like our Sunday school lesson this morning, how there can be so much error mixed in with truth. And, you know, and these miserable comforters can sound like they're so spiritual and know so much and they're so wrong. And that's the world we're living in. And so we must be a discerning people and understand The voices, 
that we are listening to? Do we appreciate and, and are, are we thankful to God for the faithful brother far and near, the brethren far and near who have a positive influence on our lives? The second one, turn to chapter 3 and verse 28. And this is closely related to what we just talked about. But notice here, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake, and this is after the burning fiery furnace, the three, the three men were saved in a, in a miraculous way. Nebuchadnezzar speaking, he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. The principle here is that we must be willing to obey God regardless of the consequences. Again, a very simple truth. You can say it's very elementary, but it is very important and integral if we are going to find faithfulness in the path forward with God in today's world, they were they yielded their bodies to the fire rather than obey the king's commandment. It says they yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. We live as they did in a very polytheistic society. Many gods. There's the god of fashion. There's the God of sports, the God of technology, the God of social tolerance. You know, just accepting everything and everyone equally. The God of pleasure, the God of central, central living, the God of materialism. We talked about independence and personal rights. Those are gods. We live in a polytheistic society, and the people around us are serving many gods. Not unlike old Babylon there in their day. Are we willing to obey God regardless of the consequences? I'd like to ask this question for you to think about, not just right now, but maybe this coming week. How often do you or I make decisions based mostly or simply on what the consequences would be. Think about that. I'll give you an illustration of this we can all identify with. Paul talks about in Romans, Paul talks about civil government and obeying them not just simply for wrath or for consequence sake, but because they're the ministers of God. And so this is one we all trip up on. So we're all the same in this one. We can't point fingers at anybody because I'm guilty of it too. How often do I slow down to the speed limit because I'm merely concerned about the consequences and not the fact that I'm to obey him? because he represents the minister of God in civil government. Okay, that's, we all face this one. 
You understand what I'm saying? That, that's, what I, that's the point. And you apply that to whatever it is. And you've heard me use this illustration many years ago. Brother came to, who was struggling with the church came and said, if I would do this, this and this, which I know is against the church's rules, if I would do this, what would be the consequences? You know, what would you do? Like, what would happen to me if I do this? He was weighing a some level of disobedience to what he knew the church wanted against what the consequences would be. Do we ever do that? Do I ever do that? I do that sometimes, probably. Do you ever do that? What's the consequences? Then I'll decide whether I'm going to do it or not. These men didn't didn't analyze their obedience or the fact of disobedience from the perspective of what the consequences would be. What's right is right. That brother that came to me that time, I said, we're not even going to talk about that. The The whole concept of that question is wrong. We're not even going to discuss it. We can do that. Now, with this, I'd like to go a little bit different thought here in relation to this. Obeying God regardless of the consequences. I believe that we are going to increasingly face this challenge. I talked about the young man who took a stand, you know, and simply said, my faith says from the scriptures, there's only two genders. You know, we know the stories, you know, currently and not too long in the recent past of businesses, small businesses that have had to, they ended up in court because they refused to do certain things like make a cake for a, a lesbian wedding or whatever, you know, just whatever it is. Like there's those uh, situations that are rising more and more in society. Isn't that interesting that in this case, you know, with... Um, you know, that there were, were people that were looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, oh, there they are. They, they didn't bow. So we're going to the king right away. and say, oh, king, you're, you got these, these three out there that didn't bow. Later, we're going to look at Daniel there. When the writing was signed, he went to his house with his window open toward Jerusalem. There were men that were seeking that out to get him in trouble. How are we going to face some of that? We haven't faced much of that yet, but how are you going to face that? How are we going to face that? When there are people that actually are out to trap us in our faith. I think we're going to be facing more of that. And again, it comes back to this whole idea, where where are we at now? And how many decisions do we make based on the consequences? If we are weak on that now, we're going to be weak on it then and find some way to skirt the issue. Let's be careful with that. Let's, let's think about that in our lives now. The third one is Daniel has, uh, that's Daniel, Daniel 5 and verse 5. God has many ways to stop evil men in their tracks. Daniel 5 and verse 5, you, the familiar story of the handwriting on the wall as we call it. They were having this great feast, 
And then in his drunken stupor, I suppose, Belshazzar was tasting this wine and he, and he wanted, he said, let's, he got this idea, let's drink this wine out of the golden vessels that my father brought back from Jerusalem, out of the temple, the sacred vessels of the temple. Let's bring them in here and add to this party, as it were. And that's what they did. Verse 3. They brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God. Later we find out what Daniel told him, that he knew better. He knew better. He knew that that was a wrong thing to do. But notice in verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. We call that the handwriting on the wall. God has many ways of stopping evil men in their tracks. And you and I can imagine the quietness, the hush that settled over that great hall. In the middle of that raucous party, I think it got really quiet. Verse 6, the king's countenance was changed, his thoughts troubled him, his joints of his loins were loose, his knees were uh, smote together. And uh, down in verse 9, then, then was the king Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Just remember, when it seems like the world is having their party today, when they shall say peace and safety, when the world is having a party, just wait till God lifts his finger and stops it. In the midst of all the clamor, in the midst of all the partying, in the midst of all the things that are happening, where a world is asleep in reality to eternal judgment, God is going to step into the picture. Let's not be deceived. Let's not be Let's not be prone to being, being asleep, as it were, and, and not understand the times, you know, that God is going to interrupt this thing in a very abrupt way. When Christ returns in the clouds of heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel says the trump of God, there's going to be an abrupt stop to the party. Let's be ready for that. All the suffering, the hardship endured by God's people will be vindicated. God is sovereign in the affairs of the world kingdoms. That truth comes out in many places in the book. All right, the fourth one, Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. We have here the scheme that they came up with, the presidents and princes, over in verse 4, found a, sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They were jealous, they were envious of his position. And so as, as envy does, or as jealousy does, it looks for an occasion, which we talked about in our Sunday school lesson, it looks for an occasion against, against them. But they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful Neither was there any error or fault found in him. He handled the business 
of ruling the kingdom in his position. I think he was next to the king. Um, in his position, he was he was faultless. He was a good manager. He handled the affairs appropriately. He was up front. You know, the auditors never had a problem with his bookkeeping, whatever it was. Faultless. He was a man of integrity. But it's interesting that they could find, for as much as he was faithful, you know, and, and I'll start in verse 5, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And so they come up with that scheme, of course, that they get the king convinced in his own vanity to make this, this, um, this rule, this law, that nobody can worship any other god to save the king for 30 days. And they schemed this to somehow to, uh, to get this, this accomplished. And the point I would like to make here is very simple. The truth is, don't let your enemies down. Don't let your enemies down. Daniel knew the consequences. He knew the law was signed. He knew what, was, what could happen. But what I find interesting, in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled and prayed upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. He did not let his enemies down. They knew that because of his integrity, because of his worship, because of his faithfulness, that they expected to find him on his knees that day, exactly the way they had seen him before. Again, we can say, regardless of the consequences, yes. And here we have man schemed, but God intervened. How could we let our enemies down? I know this is a tongue-in-cheek way of saying it. But how could we let our enemies down? Remember this, the world has a pretty, pretty accurate understanding of how a true Christian will act. I've been amazed sometimes at people that I did not think had a very good understanding of truth or Scripture, but they sure seem to know exactly the way a Christian should, should act. A true Christian, this is how they would expect them to act. A good many years ago, my wife and I were involved with some others trying to help a young girl who was in deep spiritual trouble. The plan was we would take her across the border to stay with another family to get spiritual counseling and help. We got to the border and there was a lot of difficulty. Um, because the border officials saw, seemed to see right through what was a major inconsistency in her story which did not match her appearance. They recognized immediately you know, what my wife and I represented. And they also knew that wearing makeup, dressing in modesty was inconsistent with that. So they couldn't figure this thing out. 
quite a while. I remember one of the officers coming in and explaining. He said, what I, you know, what's the, why, what's the, what's the disparity, you know, between the way this young woman is presenting herself and what you are. Both claim to be part of this concerted Mennonite group. And then he said, what I have to know is, and satisfy myself on the law, is how do I know that you're not going to just end up on the streets of Seattle? And I read about that tomorrow morning in the paper. You see, the inconsistency, and that's where we let our enemies down. They want us They expect us, if we make a true profession of Christianity, to live up to that. And they see right through the times in which we may fudge the lines. They see right through whether we're comfortable, as it were, living out our Christianity that we profess. They see right through that. There's sometimes this fallacy that, and the thinking that if we would live a little bit more like the world and not appear so different, maybe we could win more people to Christ. And I understand that in the extreme sense, probably. But finally, if we are like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. And I'm not talking about just clothing there. I'm talking about the whole of life. It is interesting, you know, that in chapter 5, you know, just backing up in the story there of the handwriting on the wall, Daniel would have probably been 70 or 80 years old by then, possibly. We don't know for sure. He was sidelined. He was, you could say he was probably living out what he thought maybe was his retirement. I mean, he he was sidelined at that point. And you remember the queen mother remembered when all the rest could not figure out how to interpret this handwriting on the wall. She remembered that. Verse 10, now the queen by reason of the words of the king. And then when she came in and she told the king, you know, don't be disturbed here. You know, there's a man that I remember stood before your father and he he was had the wisdom of the gods. You should call him. In verse 13, then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? Isn't that interesting? After all those years, he was still identified as one of those Jewish captives that came from Jerusalem. Okay, one thing is he kept his identity that whole time. We talked about that last Sunday. But the fact is that he maintained the fa- that consistency of life. He was the same Daniel. However many years later, now in this situation, that could interpret for the king. He didn't let his enemies down in that case either. For the youth, just think of it this way. 
you as youth need to have, or I should say it this way, need to think of youth as a time of resolve for greater victories to come. And we talked about this a little bit last Sunday, I referred to it, but Daniel did not get to, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not get to where they were in their victories for the God of heaven, whether it was in the fire of the, of the fires of the burning fiery furnace, whether it was later in the lion's den, or whether it was interpreting for the king. You know, they didn't get there by being careless and indifferent in the early stages of their life. They had purpose. They purposed in their hearts. They had resolve. And, and there's no way that we can separate, you know, their resolve in chapter 1 to say, no, we're drawing a line here. We're not going to defile ourselves with the, with the king's meat. We're not going to do that. You can't separate that from how firmly they stood, maybe in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and, and, and on. Because as we sing sometimes, each victory will help you another to win. God doesn't throw us into the lion's den right away. He takes us through some other experiences to strengthen our faith and to build us. And if we miss those opportunities, we can put ourselves in spiritual jeopardy when the real tests come. Maybe we could say it like this. If you, if you think about chapter 1, eating of the king's meat, versus the, say, the lion, lion's den, if you can't handle a food fight, how will you deal with lions? You see that, that, that principle there, that, that relationship. So let's not lose these smaller battles today in our defaulting ourselves with the world, if we want to stand firm when we are going to face the real lions or the fire. Be consistent in our lives. That's all of us. Seek to be consistent. Do what's right, no matter who is watching, no matter the consequences, because the God of heaven is always watching us. Fifth one, chapter 6, verse 21. This is after Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. The king could not sleep all night. He finally came early in the morning and called out with a lamentable, lamentable voice. In verse 20, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lion's? Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths, and they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. The point here I'd like us to remember this morning is, don't let yourself become lion's food. Don't let yourself become lion's food. Daniel's deliverance was not from the lion's den, it was in the lion's den. And Daniel could have thought and prayed all the way to the lion's den that God would deliver him. And he ended up getting thrown in there. But the deliverance of God was not to save him from the lions, it was to save him in the midst of the lion's den with the lions all around him. A couple things. One thing is he said, my God, my God. 
Do we have that personal relationship with my God? You claim, my God. My God is going to deliver me. Whether That's like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. We know our God is capable of delivering us. We don't know whether he will decide to do it or not. But it doesn't change the fact that we're going to not bow to this image. Daniel knew his God could deliver him from the lions. He didn't know if he would or not. Beside the point, really, as a man of God. And he didn't know when he was falling into that den or pushed in there, whatever it was, whether he'd be eaten immediately. He didn't know that. Why did he not become lion's food that day? The men that were thrown in after him, sure, found the lions really hungry. Why didn't that happen to Daniel? You know what he says here? Very interesting. Verse 22. For as much as before him, innocency innocency was found in me. How are we going to keep from becoming lion's food? And we know the scripture tells us, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. How are we going to be keep from becoming lion's food? That the devil is going to devour us when he's walking around as that roaring lion. Daniel says, innocency was found in me. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if we are going to survive the roaring of the lion in the last days, we're going to have to keep our relationship with God up to date. We're going to have to stay away from sin. If there's sin in our lives, we're going to have to repent of it. If Daniel would have had sin in his, in his life, would have he survived the lions? I doubt it. He said, because innocency was found in me. When Balaam there, and Balak wanted him to curse Israel, I didn't look it up. I think it's in the book of Numbers. You remember that third time, and he took him out there, hoping that he would, he would, and he offered him money and riches, curse the people of God. And Balaam had told him, I can only say what God allows me to say. And Balaam said, just come. And he took him up on a high mountain, and he showed him all the encampment of Israel. And what did he say? I found no iniquity in Jacob. Balaam could not curse Israel that day because in viewing the camp of Israel, he said, I don't see any iniquity here. The blessing of God is upon this people. And he just burst forth in a blessing upon them. As a congregation, as a people of God, as families, how are we going to survive the roaring of the lion? We must stay close to my God, as Daniel did. My God deliver me because there was innocency in my heart. That's why the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And I think we could just paraphrase that to say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, I'm food for the lion. Number six, chapter seven and verse nine. There's a lot of part of these passages that we could look at, but we're not going to, we're summarizing these. 
Daniel here had the vision of the last days, the last, the final judgment. After the kingdoms of this world were cast down, we have the verse nine. I, I just—it's just a majestic view of this future scene. I beheld till the thrones—that's the thrones of world empires—till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days, the eternal one, did sit, whose garment was. White as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. Here we have the eternal one will always have the last word. It is one of the messages repeated over and over in the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And remember, the book of Revelation was not written for prophecy debate for 2,000 years. The book of Revelation was written for the encouragement to suffering saints that the God of heaven is going to be victorious. Even though there's wars and fights and You know, the devil is trying hard to deceive, but the book of Revelation is written to encourage us. It's like this scripture right here. The eternal one will always have the last word. God will arrive and take his seat in judgment. God will arrive and take his seat in judgment. That's an encouragement. That gives us courage in a troubled world. This truth stands as firm, we could say, as God himself. And it gives us faith and calmness of soul and courage, regardless of what the future holds for us as God's people. We can move on with a positive mindset under the blessing and the power of God and the mercies of God claiming that because our king is going to be victorious. And though all the, you know, the beast systems of this world and and all that what the devil is trying to do to destroy him, God will be supreme. God will be victorious. What we need to do is stay in tune with him and his power that he gives us to be in victory ourselves. The last one, Daniel 9. This is the prayer of Daniel. And this, to me, is one of the outstanding passages of this book. So Daniel was an old man, between probably 80 and 100 years old. So we understand at this time. Notice verse 2. This was the last king he, I believe, he served under. Verse 2, in the first year of this of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel here was reading, he was studying the prophets, and he was reading, and he came across this passage, maybe he had read it many times before, probably, but the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, the carrying away into Babylon, and that they would be there for 70 years. 
And then there was going to be a return, which we know happened under Ezra and Nehemiah. Because Cyrus, um, the king, you know, allowed them to go back and to rebuild the temple. And so here Daniel was, was, was reading this, and he started, it seems like he was starting to think about this. And he realized that the 70 years were almost up. And it was going to soon be time. He, I don't, we don't think that he lived to see that probably, that we know of. But, but he realized that the 70 years were almost up, that Israel's captivity was almost over. And they were going to soon return to Jerusalem. And then you have this prayer. And I would like, this last point is, I entitled it, The Strength of a Burden Born in Honest Humility. And I think this is one of the keys for us to move forward in today's world with courage, no matter the trouble, the whatever happens. Only God knows all of that. But you know, to have this kind of burden for the people of God, I'm going to read some of these verses in closing. And I'd like you to, to think of and, and sense the heart of this man, this man of God, as he is praying before God, he identifies with the sins of his people. And, and he says, you know, we have sinned. Let's notice this. Verse 3, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned. And have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. <clears throat> Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off though through all the countries, whether thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongeth mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have trespassed thy law, even by departing, and they, that they might not obey the voice, thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses and the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges, that judge, judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For unto the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, and all this evil, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, Thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and hast gotten thee renowned as at this day. We have sinned and we have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness. I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury 
be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplication, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people that are called by thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, having caused, being caused to fly swiftly, touch me about the time of the evening oblation. You talk about a burden for God's people. Now, I'd just like to close with this this morning. And you think about the importance of our relationship with God's people. He identifies with the failures of his people as a true leader will. He's deeply concerned for their future, good and faithfulness. And I'd just like to ask this this morning. For us to find courage and faithfulness for the future in a troubled world. What is our concern for the church, the people of God? Do we have a deep concern for her faithfulness? Do we have a deep concern about our mistakes and our failures as we humbly seek the face of God together? Are we on our knees begging God for wisdom to understand his will like Daniel was? It can't just be the ministers the preachers that have this burden, but it must be every member of the body of Christ together. Do we have a deep and humble acknowledgement of our own failures and beseech the face of God for his mercy that he might save us from the destruction of the Babylon about us? It is this kind of humility and deep personal reflection, I believe, that will keep God's revealed will coming to us each step of the way forward. It's this kind of humility and this kind of burden before God and seeking the face of God so that you and I can be touched by the angel. Are we in prayer so deep and so strong so humbly and so broken that we feel the touch of the angel. Let's pray.
Father God, we come to you this morning realizing our own insignificance. Father, we also acknowledge our own proneness to failure, our own indifference at times to the needs around us. Father, we have often erred from the path that you have wanted us to follow. And we have at times, Father, let worldliness creep into our hearts. We want to repent of that. We've not been as careful as we should have at times, Father, in some of the decisions we've made. But, Father, we beseech thy mercy, thy truth, thy grace. We know the stakes are high in this battle. And if we lose it, we lose our souls. Help us, Father, to be strong, regardless of the consequences of whatever it takes to be faithful. We thank you that you as the God of Daniel, with all the miracles, the faith-building stories, is the same God today, Father, that we can know, we can serve you. And know for the future, regardless what happens, you will be there, you are already there, to meet the need of the hour. Father, we know as in Daniel's experience, there's a great many that are lost in the pages of history because they did not take a stand. So Father, help us, in this our generation, to take a stand. Be strong and courageous, a positive message of your greatness and sovereignty in the days ahead. Bless each of our hearts this morning. May your Holy Spirit work in each of us to perfect us and bring us into that place of contrition and humility before you so that you can continue to bless us as the people of God. We ask the name of Christ. Amen.